We're in the book of Titus, so start making your way to Titus. We're in chapter 3 of Titus, been working our way through this book. Remember, Paul writing to a faithful servant, Titus, who's ministering to the Cretans, who've earned their name, they're a rough bunch. Anybody know a rough bunch? Tom, that's your section over there, the rough bunch. Give us your cue. The rough bunch that comprise this group of people that Paul's equipping Titus to minister to them, you know, kind of uh, in a robust way. It's because he knows that Titus will be challenged, that the doctrine will be challenged, that there's Judaizers there who want to draw groups of people away from the church to themselves, and Paul knows he's on his way out. He's probably accepted at this point when his imprisonment is not going to end well from a human perspective. He'll be martyred, so he's preparing those to carry the torch in his stead. We pick up in Titus 3 here, uh, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 tonight. Let me read them to you. Father, we thank you for this book that is so pertinent to us and so applicable to us in a rough generation, in a dark time. We ask that these principles will come alive to us tonight and that you would strengthen our faith by them and that you'd give us wisdom on how to behave in such a way that we would bring glory to our Heavenly Father in all we do and say. I ask that in Jesus' name and the church said, amen. Titus 3, 1 through 5. Remind them to respect, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Let's stop there for tonight. There's plenty in there for us to take a look at. The lighting's a little weird up here, so... Bear with me if I go blind at any minute while I'm trying to... Is it extra bright tonight or is it the rain? Nothing. My brother's making hand signals at me. So here's Titus being instructed by Paul. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers. So let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, It's a reminder for us as Christians not to be problematic or rebellious towards leadership. Amen? All right, let me say that again. We as Christians shouldn't be problematic or rebellious towards leadership. Amen. And, you know, you say, well, pastor, look at some of the leadership we've got around us today. Still, God expects us to behave in a way that brings honor to him. There are always good leaders, bad leaders among men. We saw it throughout Israel's history. We saw it through the kings that sat on the throne and ruled over Israel. You know, think about that. Most of the kings were wicked kings that ruled over Israel. Think about the stench in God's nostrils that that was when he didn't want them to have a king in the first place. They said, we, we want to be like every other nation. Give us a king. And, and God was like, that's not really what you want. And the, the, the prophet Samuel is like, they're rejecting the Lord, and he chastised them. But still, they wanted to be like everybody else, and they got Saul. And we know what a hot mess Saul was that God had to replace him before he was done in the natural reigning. He had to put a man after his own heart on the throne, David. David wasn't a perfect guy, but he was God's choice, and he was one of Israel's greatest kings. So all throughout history, there have been good leaders and bad leaders, but the Word tells us that you know we should not be problematic or rebellious towards leadership as much as it's possible. Christians should be law-abiding citizens. As long as the laws honor God, as long as they are just laws, Christians should follow the laws. 
And, you know, as much as possible there, the Bible tells us that, you know, we're going to have difficulty in this world. We're going to have trouble. We're going to come up against things we don't agree with. There are even times throughout history and humanity where Christians had to say no to certain things. You realize if you are a Christian in the underground church in China now, there's mandatory abortion. You're not supposed to worship. I mean, there's all of these things that those Christians have to say, we must obey God rather than man. Someone say amen. But in general, we have to be law-abiding citizens as much as possible. It's important to know that God expects us to be respectful to God-ordained leadership. Look, you can look in Scripture, and the, the, the leadership that we see, even in among the nations, God ordained the structure, amen? God ordained governments. Yet at the same time, we know from studying the book of Revelation that governments will be described in the end times as beasts that devour men. So it's a necessary evil, but it's a God-ordained structure. And we're expected to submit to that as much as possible. Now listen to me. You can't fly down the street at 100 miles an hour without insurance, weaving in and out of traffic, and then get an attitude when you get pulled over and say, only God can judge me. Okay, some of you look disappointed. Don't try this at home, amen. No, not only God can judge us. Well, we're Christians. God's our judge. Yeah, but while we're here, we have to obey the just laws of man, amen? And that's what God asked us to do. So, you know, God is not pleased with those who think that they can be disrespectful and unsubmissive towards authority in the world and in the church. Yet we have a very disrespectful, non-submitted generation. They've been taught that since they were little kids. This is the generation that grew up saying, if your parents treat you in a way you don't like, call this number and we'll send somebody over there from CPS and they'll straighten your parents out. How many, how many Christian parents had come home and their kids said, if you do that to me, I'll call this number? I've heard people tell that story. Could you imagine doing that when we were kids? First of all, after we saw the dentist on multiple occasions, you know, it's a different world. Yet, you know, we have to submit to the God-ordained authority. We have to submit to the just laws of man. And when we do, God is pleased with that. But God is not pleased with those who call themselves saints and are part of the church that blindly uh, follow any form of wickedness just because somebody in charge said so. There are people sitting in churches where they're teaching heresy and they sit there because, oh, that's the pastor. There are people sitting in churches where, you know, the pastor's in immorality or misusing money and people make excuses and they sit there. That's wrong. It's just as wrong in the sight of God to just comply with any old authority and follow it blindly. When did the church forget that we're supposed to be salt and light in the earth? When did the church forget that we're not just supposed to go with the flow wherever the flow takes us? We need uh, the Holy Ghost to shake us up a little bit so we find some backbone to stand against the wickedness of this generation. Someone say amen. Now, you can be a bump on the log out there, but you know what? Some of this is coming to your front door. We've been quiet. We've been laid back. We've turned a blind eye. We've busied ourselves with other things. But some of these things, Christians are going to have to take a stand at some point in America. And God expects us to stand against sin, stand against abortion and gender confusion and the redefining of marriage and the acceptance of sexual practices that the Bible says are sin. We got to love people, but we got to stand against false doctrine and wrong teaching. Why? Because we're losing a generation and the church's silence has caused it to be driven from the public square to the point where we don't have a voice of credibility anymore. So God expects us to submit to God-ordained authority. It pleases him when we do that. It also displeases him when we refuse to speak to the evils of our generation. Our generation is definitely defiant and rebellious against all authority. It's in the church. It's outside the church. It's in the school systems. It's in the home. The defiant and rebellious spirit that was in the world has crept into the church. And, you know, we need to respect leadership in the church. Now, I realize when the pastor is telling people to respect leadership, it seems self-serving, right? Well, I'm sorry, but I have to preach what's in the word here. But let's extend respect to not just our church or, you know, uh, the pastors that we have here. Let's extend it to the body of Christ, amen? 
don't attack leadership. Don't, now, if it's wrong and, and there's problems, you know, sometimes it needs to be spoken to, but be respectful to, to men of God in this Dutchess County area. There's a lot of good pastors here, amen? There's a lot of churches teaching the word of God. Full Gospel Center is not the lone outpost. We're the only ones. Pre- I've heard pastors like that. Well, we're the only ones teaching the truth. Get over yourself. God's got a remnant. God's got other people who are doing, you know, doing what they're supposed to do, and they're doing it better than you, buddy. So, you know, we're not the only ones. So extend respect towards godly leaders. If a leader is godly and anointed and obviously put there by God, he has spiritual gifts that are in operation, he has integrity, you know, we should support and submit to leadership like that. If not, we'll find ourselves resisting God himself. But on the flip side, there again, I'm always giving you the other side of these things. You know, if you have a church that's not following the word and a pastor that's not, you know, godly and there's all kinds of issues, Christians need to step away from ministries like that. If you ever leave Full Gospel Center and you move somewhere to to escape from New Yorkistan and you find yourself in a church and it's not what you thought it was and you begin to see anomalies and inconsistencies and spiritual uh, you know, things that are out of sync. Don't be afraid to get up and get out and find a place where there's integrity. Amen. I got to say that as a pastor in New York because everybody eventually leaves. So when you do, find a godly place and find a good ministry where there's integrity in it. Submit to godly leadership. Walk away from ungodly leadership. Christians have a part to play in making our communities a better place, amen? The gospel is not just to be contained inside the four walls of the church. This is a lie we've believed, and, you know, we've got to break outside the walls. We have to serve uh, in the community and be involved and let our light shine, be salt and light in the earth. Uh, All of that fun we just had was in verse 1. Let's look at verse 2. Verse (coughs) 2 of chapter 3 tells us what? Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. So we serve godly leadership. We serve people with integrity. Two, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were, and we'll we'll continue in verse 3, but let's just take a a look at verse 2. Verse 2 paints a picture of the demeanor we should have in the public square. Now, I mentioned that the church's silence has gotten it driven out of the public square and that people don't want to hear the church's opinion anymore. Have you noticed that? Uh, but somehow, some way, we need to have a voice because without the voice of the righteous in the generation, the generation is doomed. It's important that the world sees good character in those who call themselves Christians because to them... We directly represent God. Well, that's a heavy weight to carry, isn't it? Now, I know it's raining out there, and I feel a little disconnected from you, but hear me tonight. When people look at us, people that will never read the Bible, people that will never come to church, they're sizing up Jesus, they're sizing up Christianity by the way we behave, by the way we speak, by the way we carry ourselves. Does that sober anybody up but me? I mean, it's a, it's a sobering thing. It's been said before that you and I are the only Bible that some people will read. That means, you know, we got to live right and tight because we're an example and, and people are looking at us to see what they think about Jesus. Now, in verse 2 here, you, you see four marks of good Christian character. And the first one was this. It says, speak evil of no one. Did you catch that in there? Now, this requires the disciplining of the tongue. Now, we know from Scripture that the tongue is the hardest member of our body to discipline. Amen? How many wrestle with their tongue every day? Amen. The rest of you are lying or you fell asleep. All of us, you know, there are things that come out of all of our mouths. Did you ever, I mean, did you ever just say something and you're like, where did that come from? Why did I say that? Or you know, you get around certain people that bring a, a response out of you. And the text here is telling us to speak evil of no one. Now, who's included in no one? Everyone. 
everyone's included. That means, you know, we're not supposed to just tear any old, we're not supposed to tear anybody apart. Now, I know that this is relevant to us right now because there's a lot going on in the governmental leadership where people are tearing certain people to shreds. And rightfully so. And rightfully so. And rightfully so. But the Bible tells us to watch our tongues. You know, as hard as this is, we should do more praying for leaders than we do criticizing of them. I, look, I, I don't have it down perfect. I'm trusting you're struggling with it too. But this is a pertinent word for us now that God is saying speak evil of no one. So we, we, can, we can call out injustice. We can call out dereliction of duty, all of these things. But we need to do it in such a way that we don't defile ourselves with the words that come out of our mouth. What's the second mark of good Christian character in Titus 3.2? To be peaceable. Now, this means that even those we disagree with, even those we are diametrically opposed to, we still act civilly with them. Civility has plummeted since the invention of social media. Why? Because the anonymity of being behind a keyboard in a location that's undisclosed makes a lot of people brave. And people say things that they never would have said before. Now, our societies become more vitriolic and nasty and judgmental. And as Christians, we got to be very careful not to get caught up in that. And let's be honest, we're wrapped in flesh too, and we have opinions, and you know what? Uh, we can get, you know, into arguments and discussions, and we can, you know, be so, uh, you know, wanting to contend over issues that we become contentious, and then all of a sudden, we don't look like Jesus anymore. Now, I know Jesus flipped some tables over and made a whip and threw money changers out, but that was one time. That's not four times a day before lunch, Right? Everybody likes to quote that one. Well, Jesus, you know, well, you don't sound much like Jesus. Well, Jesus, you know, uh, remember that time Jesus beat up the Pharisees? No, that's not in the Bible. Be peaceable. Be civil. As much as it depends on you, you know, get along with everyone and just be loving. So the second mark is be peaceable. The first one is speak no evil of others. Number three, the third mark of good Christian character in verse two is be gentle. Be gentle with people. You know, the older I get, and maybe you experience this too, the older I get, the more I mellow out. Anybody mellowing out? You know, some of you are so mellow, I can't tell if you're alive right now. You're not talking back to me. But the older I get, the more I mellow out. And you know what? That's just wisdom that comes with age. In our youth, a lot of us are explosive, and a lot of us are passionate, and a lot of us are just don't know how to control our emotions. But as we get older in the Lord, we need to learn gentleness, amen? It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Now, I know people push your buttons. I know people rub you the wrong way. I know people say the most outlandish things because, you say, how do you know that? Because they do it to me. So understand, in all of that, in facing all of that, the Word asks us to have good character and to be gentle. There's an old expression, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Anyone ever heard that? You know, sourpuss, nasty, judgmental Christians turn off everybody. But you know what? If, you, if we can just let something slide. You know, water rolls off a, a duck's back. You know that? We need, to, we need to be like a duck a little bit. Let some things roll off. Let some things go. Extend grace. Did you ever meet somebody that was so abrasive in the beginning that you couldn't stand them and you turned out to be good friends with them? That's happened to me more than once. And some people I thought were great, and after a while I couldn't stand them, so it happens in reverse too. Just being real with you. But learn to be gentle. Gentleness is a good thing. Just, and it comes from controlling our tongues, and it comes from embracing civility. That gentleness will kick in. The fourth mark that is discussed here in Titus 3, 2 is to be humble. Humility is something all of us have to work into our character. The Holy Spirit is working hard to keep us humble. How many understand if we're not humble, God will humble us? You know, God resists the proud. I never want to be in a position where I'm not humble, I'm arrogant, and now I'm not fighting all the annoyances around me. I'm actually fighting God because he's trying to humble me. 
arrogance really sets God off. Because the truth is, you and I live under grace. Everything we've been given is a, is a gift of grace. What platform do we have to be arrogant? Well, uh, I got more grace than you, so I'm extra special. God has to humble the proud. So speak evil of no one, be peaceable, be gentle, and be humble. Four marks of good character. Verse 3 continues here, and it's a reminder of exactly who and what we were before we met Jesus. Now, look, I don't say we should ever live in the past, but we should never forget where we came from. Let me say that again. We shouldn't live in the past, but we should not forget where we came from. It's amazing. Some of us came out of the muck and the mire and the slop and the filth, and we act like we were born full of the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues, leading the generation to Jesus. Come on, I've seen this before, and it's just like, it makes you scratch your head. Remember where you come from. Why? Because that'll keep you humble. It says, for we were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Let's stop there. There's plenty to unpack in verse 3. You know, we looked at the four marks of good Christian character, and then verse 3 is telling us to remember where we came from. You know, all of us need to hear this because no matter how disciplined and how pious and how holy we might be today, we started out as sinners lost in the dark needing grace. You know, before a soul gets born again, it, theologically, it's, it's in an unregenerated state. Uh, that state of ungeneration is really, you know, you're spiritually dormant and you're spiritually dead. You're walking around as a dead man. You and I didn't begin to live until Jesus Christ came into our hearts and we were born again. Amen? That's good news for us. But you look at the generation out there that's unregenerated. They don't know Christ. They are the walking dead. It's not just a bad TV show. It's reality, spiritually. Dead men walking. Why? Because they're, the, the spirit within them is dormant. It's not connected to God. Only Jesus can bring it alive. So we were that at one point. All of us were. No matter how you know, much we got it together and how much we love Jesus now and how much we've harnessed purity and how much we've rejected sin and how much we've disciplined ourselves to stay unspotted from the world. Those are all good things, but we can't forget where we came from. Paul reminds Titus that we ourselves were once these six things. Number one, we were foolish. How does everybody like number one? Nobody likes being called a fool. In fact, the Bible tells us not to call our brother a fool or we're in danger of hellfire. So calling somebody a fool is a big deal. And it's not done just flippantly. So when the, world's, when the word says that we were foolish at one time, it's to sober us up. We were all foolish at one time. What does that mean? No matter how intelligent we were, what our IQ was, how many degrees we had, how many talents and abilities we had, at the point where we had rejected the Creator and rejected Jesus, we stood as fools before God. Think about that. Psalm 53.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is None that does good. Look at that. The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. Before we came to Christ, we were in foolishness. Uh, this point is not getting any traction. We, the things that we thought were good weren't good. The things that we thought were admirable and we should lay our lives down for, it, it, was, it was wrong. It was upside down. It was inside out. We were foolish. Our eyes were darkened. Our minds were twisted. Our, our passions were driven by the wrong things. We never can forget that that's where we came from, lost in the dark, acting foolishly, living, you know, living in a way that ignored the Creator. And, it, and it's something that we need to remember outside of Jesus Christ. We're in the dark, but because of him, we're in the light. So there's humility there to admit, once I was a fool. Once I lived for me. Once I thought living for God was foolish. But in Christ, I have wisdom now to understand it's better to lay my life down for God now and live with him for eternity than to have a party now and waste my soul forever foolishness amen 
And the world revels in IQs and talents and abilities. Oh, what a great musician, what a great comedian, you know, and all these things, and they prop people up on pedestals, but yet outside of a relationship with God, we're fools because the fool says in his heart there is no God. Number two, we were disobedient. Outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are in the flesh. And let me tell you something. You know, we weren't spiritual before we were born again. Remember, we were dead men walking. We might have been religious. We might have known some theology. We might have had some good character traits. But the truth is that we were disobedient. Why? Because we were in the flesh. And when you're in the flesh, you can never please God. Now, if you don't believe that, listen to Romans 8, 7 through 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did you hear that scripture? Let me, let me read that to you again. I want that to soak in. Uh, Romans is such a powerful book, such a powerful book of theology. Chapter 8 is an incredible chapter. We could spend months in chapter 8, but listen to verses 7 and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity, it's at war with, it's an enemy of God. Enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So in the flesh, you can't please God, you you can't fulfill the law of God. Verse 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is so important for us to understand. Why? Because even when we're in Christ, if we go back to trying to please God with works, we put ourselves under the law, and then our flesh fails all over again. Legalism is... Legalism for the Christian is foolishness. Why? Because all the law exists for now on this side of the cross is to prove to us that we need Jesus. For those who need Jesus and have Jesus and then want to go back to works-based, you know, performance-based pleasing God, it's foolishness. And so understand, the flesh is disobedient to the Lord. It cannot be obedient to the Lord. If we're in the flesh, we can't please God. You know, you might think, well, I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I got Jesus. You know, my flesh is completely gone. I don't have any troubles with it. All of us know that that's not true. We've got to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Amen. Can a born again Christian still be fleshly? You bet your boots they can. Yeah. And so it's this exchanged lifestyle. We exchange the old nature, the old pattern, the old man for the new man that walks in the spirit. Uh, In the flesh, we can't please God. In the flesh, we're disobedient. And before we knew Christ, we were all foolish and we were all disobedient. Number three, we were deceived. Look at that. You know, it seems to go from bad to worse here. So we were foolish, we were disobedient. Now we're deceived. There are two kinds of deception. There's a deception Uh, in a soul that says there is no God, there is no heaven or hell, there's no point to life, do whatever you want when you die your worm food. How many know that that's deception? Many in our generation believe that. There's no God, there's no life after death, there's, you know, this, this, you know, Christianity, it's all foolishness, it's all made up stories and all that. You know what, one breath on the other side of this life and they're gonna wish that they didn't swallow that lie. The truth is, that all of us, before we came to Christ, were deceived. So the first level of deception is that people reject God and they don't believe there is a God and they become foolish and they're overcome with disobedience and all of this chains together. The second way to be deceived, and this is the more common deception in our generation, is that they believe things like all roads lead to God and you know what, I'm completely, you know, lost, but I'm fine, and I'm a good person, and so I'll make it to heaven. Anybody, anybody recognize these ones? You know, oh, it's all your spiritual journey, and everyone, you know, goes to heaven, and all roads lead to God, and, you know, uh, it's just, it's these lies. It's this deception. Now, if someone won't believe in God, that's one way for the devil to bind them up. But if someone will believe in God, but then not believe in what the Scripture says on how to get to God, that's the second way. And that's the most common way. Most people we know, most people we work with, with family, other, I believe in God. You know, and you start to tell them about Jesus, I believe in Jesus. And, you know, you start to tell them about the Bible, oh, yeah, that's good stuff. You know what, the devils believe that stuff. 
that doesn't save you, amen? So there's this level of deception. Now, when we're in that darkness and we're deceived and we think we're good and God grades on a curve and as long as we're not as bad as Hitler, we're gonna go to heaven, you know, as long as we don't murder anybody, some of you look nervous. The truth is that, and you and I know it once we come to Christ, is without Jesus, you know, we're not going to heaven. Without a personal relationship with him, we're lost. We're deceived. So there's deception in the hearts of men, and before they come to Christ and out of the darkness and into the light, they're deceived. Don't, don't look at your loved ones and your family members and your coworkers and say, oh, they're good people. You know what? God, God, they'll get saved. You know, God will accept them. Please don't believe that lie. We have got to preach the gospel to this generation because without the gospel, they're not going to get saved, amen? Well, they're good and they're nice and all that stuff. That doesn't get you into heaven. You and I know it. On the other side of the cross, we're not deceived anymore, but we have the truth and the truth makes us free. Number four, it says serving various lusts and pleasures. We all understand that when we come into the kingdom, out of the darkness into the light, there's old patterns and habits and lifestyles that need to be left behind and buried in the waters of baptism. Serving various lusts and pleasures. The reality is when we don't have Jesus, we're, we're going to find some pet sin. We're going to find something that tickles our flesh. We're going to find something we have an appetite for, and we're going to indulge in it without restraint because it's all we've got. Don't look at sinners and go, how can those sinners sin like that? They're sinners. When we were sinners, we sinned like that too. Well, maybe we didn't do, you know, this one or that one, but there was something that we were connected to and made a God out of it. It could have been a hobby. It could have been a sport. It could have been, you know, some pleasure, some thing that, but it took the place of God in our lives. And that's the issue, amen? Even still, as Christians, we've got to make sure that Jesus is on the throne of our hearts, serving lusts and pleasures. There's so many idols out there for, for us to serve. It's, it seems like a never-ending list, a barrage of things that try and captivate our eyes and steal our attention and get us to focus on. And, you know, they might not even be bad things. They might be good things. But listen, nothing can take the place of Jesus on the throne of our hearts. Before we had Christ in our lives, we served various lusts and pleasures. We came to Jesus and all of us were driven to serve something other than him. We had this insatiable desire to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts with something, with anything. And we tried really hard to do it. Because of the nature of our flesh, we had no other option but to do that. Even in Christ, we've got to put our flesh in check and learn to walk in the Spirit. Every day, you and I, need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Amen? Oh, you know, I got my flesh under control, Pastor. No, there's a, there's a right moment. There's a right scenario. There's a setup that the enemy's been grooming you for. Listen, every day we need to crucify that flesh. The day we don't is the day it'll take advantage of us and overcome us. So learning to walk in the Spirit is the key to putting the flesh in check. Listen to Galatians 5. 16 through 17. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It doesn't say be a Christian and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can be a carnal Christian and still be chasing lustful things. You can still be driven by the things of this world. So it says walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. See that internal struggle. And these are contrary to one another so that you do the things you do not want to do. Ouch. Paul reveled in this. Why do I do the things I hate? You know, even the apostle Paul, who, who you know, was caught up into the third heaven, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, who was the greatest apostle that ever lived, even Paul struggled with the flesh. So don't be surprised when we wake up in the morning and we've got to crucify that thing and learn to walk in the Spirit. Now, I understand that walking in the Spirit can be almost an abstract thing. Anyone like try, like that's hard to wrap your head around, anybody? I think that we need to seek the Holy Spirit and ask Him to teach us to walk in the Spirit, amen? 
Certainly it comes out of our devotional time. It comes out of our worship time. It comes from us being consecrated, not giving our, yielding our members to sin, coming out of the world, uh, being, you know, and all of these things help us to do it. But there needs to be a, a close walk with the Holy Spirit and, and an instruction so that we can learn to walk in the Spirit. So I encourage you, uh, write down Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Meditate on that scripture. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you to walk in the Spirit. Why? So we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let me just say one last thing about this. A fleshly, carnal Christian is the most miserable person to ever walk the face of the earth. You say, why do you say that? Because if we're born again and we know the truth and we know that the things of the world are empty and useless, yet we try to satisfy ourselves with those things, we become a carnal, fleshly Christian, and we're going to be miserable. You know, you can still be saved, but you're going to be in constant conflict and hypocrisy, and that internal war that's going on between the flesh and the spirit, when the, when the, when the spirit is being overwhelmed by that, it's going to rob our peace, it's going to rob our joy, and it's going to you know, make life a living hell. The best thing we could do is crucify this flesh every day to really get serious with God, to keep no pet sins for ourselves. You know, many people are, well, I'll give you this, Lord, and I'll give you that, Lord, and I'll, I'll, I'll discipline this area of my life, but this area here, no, I'm just going to keep that for myself like a, a little pet sin. Oh, some little foxes, right? That'll get you. That pet sin might look cute and innocent and insignificant at first, but it will grow into a monster that will challenge your salvation. So don't be a carnal, fleshly Christian. I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you, but you and I should be committed to the Lord 110%. Number five, the fifth thing that we extract here out of verse three is living in malice and envy. So the word is telling us before we were in Christ, we lived in this state, malice and envy. Now, the unsaved are highly susceptible to getting stuck in bitterness. How many people get saved and come to Jesus, yet they have roots of bitterness in them that need to be dug out through, you know, prayer and uh, deliverance and all those things? Why? Because when you're unsaved and somebody wrongs you and you don't understand that you've been forgiven, so you have to forgive, a lot of people will hold on to that wrong and turn it into a root of bitterness. And see, before we came to Christ, all of us had unforgiveness and roots of bitterness. And people, you know, we were susceptible to that, you know, envy and getting stuck there in unforgiveness and, and wanting revenge. How many want that? Remember that, just wanting to get even with people. Oh, you look so holy out there. But the truth is, you know what? Before we had Christ, we, we wanted to get revenge. We wanted to get even. We wanted to give people a piece of our mind. Now, you know, as Christians, all of that has to, has to be, you know, fading away. We don't have any recourse to seek vengeance because the Bible says vengeance is the Lord's. God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We don't have any recourse to be bitter and not forgive someone. Why? Because we've been forgiven. We, we become that, that wicked servant that was forgiven a great debt and then found his fellow slave and beat him because he owed him a little bit of money. You remember that parable? If we're forgiven and we refuse to forgive others, we become that wicked servant and we attract the wrath of God upon our lives. So, you know, living in malice and envy, that's something that uh, we, we, we struggled with when we were unsaved. But now that we're saved, we've got to let those things go. Listen to John 8, 31 through 32. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If we abide in him, so it's that connection to Jesus, that personal abiding, connecting to him that allows us to know the truth, and then the truth sets us free. And the truth is we have no, we have no room for bitterness and unforgiveness in our lives. If we choose to have that, we have no room to want revenge in our own lives. If we choose to have that, then we, we disconnect ourselves from Jesus in a way that allows us to be deceived. A root of bitterness is a dangerous thing. If you're dealing with one, I encourage you to get counsel get with somebody that can pray with you and get delivered because if you don't, it's going to hurt you. Number six, 
this one here is kind of interesting here. Uh, it talks about hating, and hate is something that, you know, is very much a part of the world system. It's rooted in bitterness and unforgiveness, but hate is something that we, we have to categorically root out of our lives. For we were also foolish, ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. Listen to this, hateful and hating one another. It's powerful, isn't it? Now, we know as Christians, we can't hate other people, and we definitely shouldn't hate other Christians. Yet the devil is so aggressive about destroying our unity and planting divisiveness in the body of Christ. And no more, we see it in this time, no more than we've ever seen it before, just, you know, starting to realize the, the seeds of divisiveness that have crept into the church over this COVID thing and who, who got a shot and who doesn't want to get a shot and who likes mass and who don't like mass. And the body of Christ is at war with itself. And somehow, you know, it talks about in the last days that, you know, people in the, in the church are going to hate one another and persecute one another and betray one another. That's something that Jesus warned us about. So this whole being hateful and hating other people, if that's something we struggle with, and I think to some degree a lot of us do, we need to bring that to the Lord and get delivered, amen? Christians can be free from the bondage of hating others over culture, over religious practices, over denominationalism, over skin color, over economic and political stances. You know why we can do that? Because we're one in Christ. And the unity that comes from being a Christian should overrule all of that other stuff. Amen? Some of you almost seem uncomfortable out there. We got to talk about this stuff in church. It's happening in church. Amen? So if there's hate in our hearts, we've got to bring our hearts before the Lord. You, you see, but pastor, do you see what those people are doing? You, they're deceived. Do you see what they're saying? Do you see what they support? It's not biblical. I, I get it. There's a lot of that. But, you know, we might be called to refute some things or to stand on our own convictions, but we shouldn't hate people. And we, we certainly shouldn't hate those who are part of the body of Christ. We've got to hate sin, but we should never hate people. Listen to 1 John 3 through 41. We know that we have passed from life to death because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now, there's more to dig into there in 1 John, but just that little snippet there, the, the proof that we are saved is that what? We love the brethren. We know that we pass from death to life. Why? Because we love the brethren. If we hate other Christians... We got to bring our hearts before the Lord. That's what people dealt with before they came to Christ. In Christ, we have to forgive. We have to extend grace. We have to embrace the unity that God wants us to have in the church. Someone say amen, and I'll move on. Praise God. So I know, you know, this Titus stuff is, is not, you know, it's not milk. It's meat. And so we're getting a lot of meat here, here tonight, and uh, it can be hard to swallow. But hang in there. We're... we're Two verses away from being done. Verse 4 and 5 tell us exactly what changed in us from the description of our former selves that we just heard in verse 3. So we were all these other things at one point, living in malice, hateful. You know, we struggled with all of these things. But now there's a change in us, and 4 and 5 documents where that chain is. But when the kindness of our God and our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So check that out there. The change that happens in us, you know, verse 3, we were all messed up, then we came to Jesus. Now what changed us? It was the kindness and love of God. And understand that what the world needs is not judgment. They don't need doctrine. They don't need someone to tear them to pieces and make them feel ashamed of, of what they do or what they've done. They need to experience the kindness and the love of God. You know what changed me as a young man to want to serve Jesus is the kindness and the love of God I saw in the people of God when I came to this church. 
I remember as a young boy at 14 walking in here and seeing people, Tom, that had the love of God in them. You could see it on their faces. It seemed like their faces were beaming. Now, when I got to know these people, they were, they were not super Christians or anything. They just had something that I didn't have. Nobody had to preach to me. Nobody had to yell at me. Nobody had to tell me I was a sinner. I just saw a love that I didn't have, and I knew it was from God. And you know what's going to change people in your neighborhood, in your office, in your family, and people that come in here? It's the love of God. It's the kindness and the love of God. How was the kindness of God expressed? It was expressed in the fact that Jesus left his father's side. He came to earth as a helpless child. He was born in a humble manger surrounded by animals and manure, and he was rejected and mistreated by his own. They didn't receive him not, and he did all of that to embrace the cross and to rise from the grave for you and me. He did it for us, amen? You say, what is that? That's the kindness of God. God was under no obligation to do that. The, the reason that any of us are here tonight and saved and redeemed and set free and have the joy of the Lord is just because God chose to be kind to us. How about the love of God? How is the love of God expressed? Jesus willingly did the Father's will. He opened his arms and endured the cross. Jesus literally became sin for us. Jesus didn't just, you know, deal with sin or, you know, you know pay a little. Pr- no, he became sin for us. He took on the sins of all mankind. That's why the Father had to turn his face away from Jesus. For the first time, the Father and the Jesus connection was broken, and Jesus cried out from that. He said, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was all, that all about? He became sin, and the Father couldn't look upon him anymore. He did that for us. That was the love of God. We think about the pain of the cross. Oh, they, they beat him, and they put that crown on his head, and, you know, they put nails through his wrists and his feet, and they stabbed him. That was not the greatest pain that Jesus endured. The greatest pain he endured was being separated from his father, and he did that for us, and that's the love of God. The love of God is expressed in Jesus literally becoming a sin offering for us that we could accept what he's done in our place and now have a relationship with our heavenly father that leads to eternal life. What an amazing salvation we have, amen? Verse five, we'll close down with this. Verse five is, uh, well, well, we'll hit six too. Verse five is really solid uh, theology. This is the way Paul, uh, you know, his theological presentation throughout all the epistles he writes. He says this, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So uh, understand, what God did here is he saved us by grace through faith, but he he, he didn't save us on a works-based system. A lot of people get caught up in a works-based system. Why? It's because it's what the world teaches. If you study every other Uh, religious system that's out there, every single one of them without fail, if you dig hard enough, you'll find it's a works-based system. The only different system is Christianity. Why? Christianity is unlike any other religious worldview because it's the only one where God came and died for us and and we don't have to earn salvation by works. It's a free gift. There's no other system out there that you receive salvation by a free gift. But people say, oh, Christianity is just, you know, one, one of those religions among religions. No, you're not, you're not understanding what biblical Christianity is. There is no religious worldview like Christianity. There is no one else who claim, came to earth, claimed to be God, died on the cross, and rose from the grave for your sins, amen? So understand tonight, Christianity is not just a religion among religions. You know, just pick one, all roads lead to God. That's a lie. No, Paul is saying it's not a works-based system. It's not done by earning salvation. No, it's a free gift, and and it's by the grace of God. It's mercy that led us to salvation. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We can't win it. We can't have it by chance. We can't just, you know, somehow attain it. It's got to be given to us as a free gift. According to his mercy, he saved us. The second half of verse 5 kind of outlines the involvement of the Holy Spirit in the process of salvation. Remember, each part of the triune Godhead has a part to play in turning sinners into saints. 
The Father sent the Son. The Son endured the cross. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He draws us to Christ and into salvation so that we can have a relationship with God. The whole Trinity is working together to save humanity. And the, these are the three things that the Holy Spirit does the minute we come to Jesus, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When we come to Jesus, immediately the Holy Spirit washes us. What does he wash us of? The filthiness of our sin. What does he wash us in? The blood of the Lamb. After he washes us, he regenerates us. What does that mean? That's what I was talking about to you, that, that before we were in Christ, we were dead men walking. We were spiritually dormant. The regeneration that happens is that the Holy Spirit takes that the, the spirit part of us that's been dead and brings it to life. Now we're alive in Christ, amen? So the work of the Holy Spirit washes us in the blood. He regenerates us. He brings our spirit that was dead and cold and dormant to life. And then number three, he renews us. Now renewal is something that happens when we get saved. Old things pass away. All things become new. But renewal is something that takes place on a perpetual basis in the life of a believer. God is constantly refreshing us, restoring us, and renewing us by the Holy Spirit. If you're dry, if you're tired, if you're worn out, you need the renewal of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would venture to say that in this season we're going through and have been through, all of us could use a little refreshing of the Holy Spirit, amen? We could use some renewal, amen? He washes us, he regenerates us, and he renews us. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, we thank you for Titus. I thank you for these people here tonight that came out by canoe and by boat and every means possible to be here tonight. Bless them tonight, Lord, for their faithfulness. Help us to understand all of these principles that you want us to have good character. You want us to reflect Christ. You want the, the world to see Jesus in your people. You want us to be submissive and respectful towards leadership. And at the same time, you want us to stand against the ungodliness of our generation by speaking truth in love. Father, help us to realize what we came from and never forget, not to look backwards or live in the past, but never forget what we were before we came to Christ. Unregenerated foolish, deceived, messed up, driven by lusts, all of these things, Lord God. Help us to not go back to the old nature, the old pattern, but to walk in the newness that comes from being in Jesus. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the, the work of the Spirit that's in us to wash us and regenerate us and renew us, and we ask for that. We ask for that, Lord God. Do it sovereignly by your hand. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give him praise tonight.